Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great privilege to be here, and not just to worship with you, but to be able to uh, preach the word and share God's word with you. That's an immense privilege and joy, and that's not something I take lightly. So again, thank you so much for having me here. Now, the scripture reading that we will be looking at this afternoon, still morning, um, is Psalm 31. Psalm 31. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 31. You will also find the passage inside the bulletin. Now, Psalm 31. uh, Psalm 31 is one of the longer psalms. But it's been much loved by the church and the people of God because, not just because of the, the emotional intensity and the honesty, but supremely because it gave the last words to the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. You know those famous words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, the Lord Jesus, he turned to Psalm 31 as his dying words. So as we receive the word this morning, My prayer is that the dying words of Jesus Christ might be the living words for us today. So if you are there at Psalm 31, hear what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, Psalm of David, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, 
For he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Amen. Now, IGC, may these words, the words of this very song that we just read, be the song of your heart today. Be the song of your soul, not just today, but all the days of your life. That's my prayer for you. But that's not going to happen until we rediscover something that the saints of old have known very well. What is that? That is a biblical understanding of suffering. What suffering means in our lives. You know, uh, Michael Kruger, who is a president of RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, he once said these things, um, and uh, it really struck me. He said that for those of us who grew up in America or in the modern Western world, we all have learned something early on that is so deeply ingrained in all of us that we don't even think about it. We're not even aware of it. We simply assume it, and we don't even uh, challenge it. It's just in us. And what is that? He says it's simply this, this particular philosophy of life that's been so deeply ingrained in all of us since very little. It's that suffering is something that we must avoid at all cost. Or if we cannot avoid it, something to be minimized at all cost. No matter what we do, we must do all that we can to minimize suffering, to control it. That particular way of life, philosophy of life, is something that we all have learned from very early on. And in a certain sense, how can we say that is not true? Is it not true that in a certain sense that everything that we do in life, from going to good school, getting a good job, finding the right spouse, trying to stay healthy, finding the right doctor, making the right investment, all these things are instruments by which we try to avoid or minimize potential suffering. You see, suffering is a part of life. And this philosophy of life that we try to avoid or minimize suffering, it seems to work pretty well while we are still young. We are still relatively healthy. If you just put your mind to it, things happen. But as you grow older, what happens? Need I elaborate? As you get older, you realize that these instruments, these things, they don't seem to work as well as before. Your body breaks down, you get sick, you lose your confidence, you grow weak, and you get scared. You see, suffering is a part of life. That's the reality that we all face. So when it comes to this topic of suffering, we need to adjust our expectations. We need to have a right view of suffering because it is because we do not have a good theology of suffering that when we suffer, not if, but when we suffer, we tend to waste our suffering. And suffering is a terrible thing to waste because as you and I both know, very often, the most beautiful flowers in life, they bloom out of the crucible of affliction and suffering. It will be a terrible thing if we suffer and waste that suffering. 
So the question before us is this. How can we suffer well? What is a good theology of suffering? How can we not waste suffering but redeem it to the glory of God? Now to that, we want to turn to Psalm 31 because Psalm 31 will tell us at least three things about suffering. Let's walk through them one by one. The first one, the first point, is really a basic observation, but it is so basic we miss it to our loss. And it's this. One thing we cannot deny when we read Psalm 31 is this. Even the faithful believers suffer. Very basic. Even faithful believers suffer. Sometimes terribly. Now, I'm not insulting your intelligence by making that simple observation, but it is worth reminding over and over again because we tend to lose that to our great loss. Even faithful believers suffer, sometimes terribly. Yes, sometimes suffering comes because of a consequence of our sins. We all know that. But not always. Sometimes, for reasons beyond our understanding, God ordains that his people suffer for his purpose. And we can just prove this very simply. Look to Jesus, the perfect sinless one. He suffered. He was called a man of sorrows. What a name. He suffered. Just look at the long list of the godly people in Hebrews chapter 11. They all suffered immensely. One of them being David a man after God's own heart. And Psalm 31 is a psalm that he wrote in tears. So if you look at Psalm 31, let's make some observations here. Verse 9 really begins the emotional heart of the psalm. Verse 9, David cries, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in what? Distress. What kind of distress? It was so bad, he was just absolutely devastated emotionally and physically because look he goes on to say my eye is wasted from grief now, literally the verb means to waste away that's what he literally says my eye is wasting away from grief from all the tears and not just his eye but he says my soul and my body also well how long has this been going on David if you were to ask him he would say for my life is spent with sorrow, my ears with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, my bones waste away. Look, David is simply wrung out like an old rag. He is utterly devastated, exhausted. But it gets worse because verse 11, because of all my adversaries, I have become what? A reproach reproach, shame. See, exhaustion and burnout is one thing. That's a terrible thing. But reproach, despised, shame, that's quite another. And if we were to ask David, David, these are your enemies, adversaries. What did you expect from them? Comfort? Suck it up, David. They will say bad things, of course. But David would come back and say, but it's not just my enemies. Look, he says, He has become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. So he might come back and say, 
I know, who cares what my enemies say to me? They're my enemies, they will say bad things to me. But my neighbors, my friends, why even them? And David, remember, wasn't just a private individual. He was a king of Israel. Most beloved king in all of Israel. But now everybody hates him. They all flee from him. This is terrible. In fact, verse 12, he says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. A broken vessel. In the ancient world, the most worthless thing. Trash. A most useless, trash, done for, worthless, cast aside, forgotten. So when you just simply look at all these things that David is telling us, you just want to say, what happened to David? Poor David. He had been the hero of the nation, the savior of Israel, but now everybody flees from him. They all hate him. They all despise him. So you cannot imagine a more pathetic and hopeless situation than this, especially for a king who had experienced such love from the people. But can you believe it? Just when you thought, maybe David hit his rock bottom here, it gets even worse. Because on top of exhaustion and the reproach, there was also a threat, a threat of death. Now they want to kill him. Verse 13, For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. And this has been going on How long? I don't know. Many, many years. So how do you sleep at night? How do you not crumble under such pressure when such grief and intense pain, loneliness, they just happen endlessly? How do you sleep at night? That's David. King David, the man after God's own heart. So when we step away from this, at least one thing becomes very clear. Even faithful believers suffer greatly. Now, to be sure, that doesn't mean that all believers suffer in the same degree everywhere. That's not true. When we turn uh, to some other locations, some other regions in the world, like Middle East or North Korea, some of our brothers and sisters, they suffer immensely in a measure far beyond, greater than any of us can imagine. But, having that said, Christians suffer. That is not an abnormal thing, but a normal part of the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised by the fact that we go through intense suffering, as the Apostle Peter reminds us. We must not think it strange. In this fallen world, suffering is not abnormal, but a normal part of the Christian life. So therefore, what we need to do, as I said before, is we need to adjust our expectations. See, it is because our expectations are wrong or it doesn't uh, cohere with the reality that we often complain to God. It's like, God, why why did you let this happen? Did I do something wrong? Why did you let this happen to me? This Something's not right. Something has gone wrong. See, it's because we think that suffering is not part of a normal Christian life, 
that we often grow bitter and even get angry at God. Something's not right. See, we must adjust our expectations. Suffering, let, let us really settle this in our hearts, is a normal part of the Christian life in this fallen world. We need to embrace it. And when you embrace it, when you learn to accept it, paradoxically, there is this warm and wonderful release, freedom. Because how many of you, if you're like me, when suffering comes unexpectedly, do you immediately think, have I done something wrong? Am I being punished by God? It must be because I've done something wrong. What sin did I commit? Why is God doing this to me? Where is that coming from? Because in the back of, my, back of my mind, I'm thinking, this isn't normal. Something's not right. I'm being punished. Why am I suffering like this? Now, of course, when we suffer, when suffering comes, it is a good thing to examine yourself. That's a healthy spiritual discipline. But, with that said, what if suffering is not abnormal, but a normal part of the Christian life. Then what? See, on top of the pain, we suffer from guilt. Perhaps I've done something wrong. What if that's not necessarily true? What if a life of ease, no problems, what if that is abnormal Christian life? What if the normal Christian life consists of God-ordained suffering? What if that's normal? See, we need to readjust, adjust our expectations. Just look at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived such a life, a life of suffering, unimaginable suffering. How can you and I, we who claim to follow such a Messiah, how can our lives bear so little resemblance when we are following him? Brothers and sisters, so let us settle this in our hearts, the first point. Suffering is not abnormal, but a normal part of the Christian life in this fallen world. Now that's the first point. But secondly, well then we must ask, when we embrace suffering like that, what does God do? He just lets us suffer? What does he do? Point number two, when we suffer like that, God comforts his people in their suffering that we might endure it. God comforts his people in their suffering. Look, David's crying out all throughout the psalm. He's crying out to God, and what does God do? He responds. He hears his cry. Look at verses 21 and 22, for example. Blessed be the Lord, David cries, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Now, we don't know how long or how David cried out to God. David doesn't tell us. But one thing we know for sure, people may have forgotten David and even forsaken him and want to kill him. He's done for a wasted life, but not God. God has heard his cry. When David's cry fell on deaf ears to his friends, God heard his cry for mercy. And in the same way, in the same way, when we cry out to God like this, when we cry out to God in our sufferings, 
though it feels like every, everyone around us is ignoring us and shutting their ears, God listens. He will come and he will answer. You know that, at least intellectually. But here's the thing. When God comes and answers us, and he comes in comfort very often, God's comfort comes to us in ways that we don't want. At least in ways that we didn't expect. This isn't the comfort that I was looking for from God. But nonetheless, this is God's comfort. Is that not true? So when we are suffering, what is it that we want most? If you're like me, the one thing that I want when I'm suffering is this. God, take this away from me. I learned my lesson. Thank you. Just get it away from me. Remove it from me. Remove this cup from me. Does that sound familiar? That's what we want. Remove this cup from me. But as soon as you hear those words, you think of that one lonely person in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even he, the Lord Jesus, had to drink the cup. God's comfort in our suffering is never just something negative, just removal of suffering. But it is always something positive and far more glorious. He wants to give you and I what we could never have except by suffering. That's the ultimate comfort that God wants to give us. Not simply the removal of the immediate pain and suffering, but he gives us the strength to endure, to drink that cup, so that we can drink it to the glory of God. Now then, the question we have to ask at that point is this. What about David then? Because what does David want? Right here in Psalm 31. He wants the suffering to be removed. God, take this away from me. But God wanted something better for David. David, I want you to drink this cup down to the dregs. And David drank it because he is exhausted. He is wrung out emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. In every way, David has been put into the fire. So we have to ask, what then was the comfort that David received from God? What was the comfort that David received from God? Now we can think of two things. There may be many things, but at least these two things we know. First, the comfort that David received from God was God himself. Was God himself. When you read the psalm over and over again, David cries, he confesses God to be his rock or refuge. Verse 1, he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Verse 2, Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Verse 3, For you are my rock and my fortress. Rock, fortress, strong tower. All these words, they might strike to us as something beautiful, poetic. And they are. They are beautiful, poetic words. But put yourself in the shoes of David. They're not just beautiful words of poetry. It was life itself. He had been a warrior, a king. Rock, fortress, high up in the mountains. It was a matter of life and death. No doubt that these words come from all those years of wandering, just fleeing from King Saul and his great army. You see, on the plain, David's army was no match against the army of King Saul. He was outmatched. He had no chance. 
But high above the mountains, the rocks, David was secure. He was safe right there. But notice what David confesses. David confesses, Lord, you, you are my rock and my refuge. What is he saying? He is confessing before God. How often have I found shelter, refuge among the rocks above the mountains? But Lord, you, not these mountains, these rocks, you have been the rock. You have been my fortress. And that confession is something that cannot come if you have not if you had not been tested, if you had not been in the valley, as it were. That's something that David could never confess sitting comfortably on his throne in the palace, stroking his belly. How could David confess? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. If David had never been in the valley himself, it is because he had been in the valley and found God right there. And even in the valley, he found God to be the fortress, the mighty rock, high mountains. See, David comes to confess, Lord, you are my ultimate security. Not these other things, but you are my refuge, my hiding place, my rock. And that's a beautiful confession, a beautiful flower that blooms out of the affliction, out of suffering that David went through. You see, in this way, God was giving David something far more beautiful and glorious than anything you can imagine. God himself. God himself. And it's the same way with us, you and I, Christians. I trust that you and I, we both confess that, Jesus, you are my everything. And I trust that you're not lying. We are sincere when we make the confession. But if you're like me again, is it not true? Even though I sincerely believe that with all my heart, Jesus is my all, he is my king, my everything, my treasure. But when I look at myself, I catch myself, wait, wait a minute, Jesus is not the only one that I'm trusting in. In my hands, I'm also clinging to all these many other things of the world. My health, my achievement, my possession, my privilege, whatever. Jesus certainly is very important to me. He's very, very important, but is he the one thing that you are holding on to. Very often, he's not. I find myself trusting in many other things of the world, and I do not know them until those things are taken away from me and my heart is filled with panic and anxiety. And I hear Jesus looking and asking me, but you've got me. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so anxious? See, I was self-deceived. How often you and I go through that? We know Jesus is our everything. And to think otherwise is wrong. I know that and I feel bad. I feel guilty because even though I know that, I just can't. Because I feel if I let everything go and just hold on to Jesus, if he is all that I have left, then if Jesus fails me, I'm gone. I'm leaning against him with all of my weight He falls, I fall. That's scary. But that's the paradox of the Christian life. It is only when we realize the absolute poverty of the soul, my soul, that I discover true riches in Christ Jesus. 
It is because I've never really leaned against Jesus with all the weight of my soul that I don't know how strong he really is. And that's why sometimes God ordains that we suffer. It forces us to let these things go. That we have nothing else left but Jesus. And we have no other choice but to lean against him alone. And then we will find him to be the mighty fortress that he really is. But we've never known it because we've never really trusted in him alone. See, through suffering, we discover ultimate security in God. That's something that David discovered. In suffering, God was giving David himself. But secondly, David received through suffering... I dare say, something even more glorious than that. Because the second comfort that David received from God is this. God used David's suffering to comfort his own beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 1,000 years later. That blows my mind. Jesus spoke seven sayings upon the cross. Four of them, he quotes the Psalms of David. The last one being, verse 5 of Psalm 31, into your hand I commit my spirit. Of the seven sayings, he quotes David four times upon the cross. What is the implication of that? What does that tell you? The implication is amazing, massive. The songs that David wrote with his tears God used them to comfort his only son upon the cross 1,000 years later. It is as if God was saying to David, David, I have heard your cry. I know your tears. I see your pain. And all these songs that you cried out to me in all your afflictions and sufferings, I will put them upon the lips of my son and put them in his heart. And as he will cry out to me using your very words, I will use the very songs that come out of your lips to comfort my son. Now, I don't know about you. But to me, that is unspeakable glory. Can you imagine anything more glorious than that? That my words of suffering and pain, my agony, might be used to comfort my Savior. That's amazing. That blows my mind. In other words, God gave David not just his joy, peace, power, strength, what everybody wants from God, but God also gave David the very tears, the pain, the loneliness, the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. You see, you know Simon of Cyrene, the man who helped Jesus carry the cross. If Simon of Cyrene ministered to the broken body of Jesus, then David, with the song that he wrote in his tears, ministered to the broken heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is amazing. That is amazing. We dare not romanticize suffering. That is a terrible thing but we dare not waste it either. Jesus suffered for us. We must not mind a little suffering as we follow him. 
when we follow him like that, he will comfort us. He will comfort us. Which brings us to our third and final point about suffering. Namely, that we have to step back and ask another question. So we are called to suffer. We embrace it and God comforts us. Why? To what end? What is the purpose? Why? What is the great purpose of suffering? Now, there are many, many reasons, as you can imagine. But here's one according to the end of Psalm 31. According to the end of Psalm 31, it is so that with the comfort that we receive from the Lord, we might comfort others. That we might comfort others. Look at David at the end of Psalm 31, verses 23 and 24. What does he say? He's no longer looking to himself. He looks to others. He says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You see, when we suffer... Of course we want to know, why? Why am I suffering like this? God, why did you let this happen to me? We all want to know that. I want to know that. But we both know, sometimes, or very often, God doesn't tell us. There are many reasons. Some of them we find out later. Many others we don't know. We never find out. But here's one thing that God has chosen to reveal to all of us, to all God's people, It is so that with the comfort that God comforts us, we might comfort others. That we might comfort others. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.6. Paul says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. He puts it so clearly If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. We suffer that we might comfort you. And that we might comfort you, God comforts us. You see, one reason why God allows his children to suffer, even terribly, is so that we might first experience God's immeasurable comfort. And then with that comfort, comfort others because there are so many people who are in need in this world by God's grace um, my mother-in-law is now a believer in the Lord but when I first got married some 16 years ago she wasn't she was a devout Buddhist not a nominal Buddhist but a very devout Buddhist so one time I I visited my in-laws to Korea and she took me to the temple Uh, Not necessarily to try to convert me, but she wanted to show me around. And it was a great experience, a beautiful temple. I got to meet her friends, including a a monk of the temple. And over a cup of tea, we talked about religion. I had all these questions. It was a great time. But then I stepped into the main uh, sanctuary, the temple proper. And when I stepped in, one thing that just dominated the whole room was this giant statue of Buddha in the front and I saw all these people 
just reverently praying, rubbing their hands, just throwing themselves onto the floor endlessly, over and over again. And as I was observing all these things, a strange mix of emotions came over me. Because on the one hand, I felt very much at home. I mean, this is my mother country, I'm back home, and it couldn't get any more Korean than this. It's like, I'm at home. But on the other hand, I felt so out of place, all, all alone. Something isn't right here. I felt so lonely, all by myself. I didn't know what I was feeling then. I came home, I returned from my trip to Korea, and I was reading a book by John Stott. And he wrote something that just put into words perfectly what I had been feeling but couldn't articulate then. So I, I cannot improve upon his words. Let me read these things to you. This is what John Stott says. In the course of my travels, I have entered a number of Buddhist temples in different Asian countries. I have stood respectfully before a statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, serene and silent, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away, and in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nailed through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. The crucified one is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, dying in our place in order that we might be forgiven. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He had every right to sit upon his mighty throne and throw us down a book and tell us, go and live like this. These are my laws. Go and live like this. He could have done that. He didn't. He didn't turn, us, he didn't turn his face away from the agonies, the sufferings that we go through in this world. Instead, he became one of us. He became my friend. My brother, flesh and bones, flesh and blood. And he plunged into this world of pain and agony, misery. He suffers. He goes to the cross. Even in the garden, what does he say? Father, remove this cup from me. He is terrified to death. You see, Jesus didn't come saving us like a mighty hero with his chest puffed out. I can do this. This is easy. He faced, he embraced damnation absolutely terrified but he embraced it lovingly why for you and for me and that's why Jesus is able to sympathize with us he knows our frame he knows he remembers that we are dust not just because he is omniscient God but because he himself became one weak he knows what it is that we go through our loneliness our pain our suffering and he cries out in our place, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He really was forsaken in our place. So that when we cry out to God like that, if we trust in him, 
we would never be forsaken by the Father ever again. He was forsaken. He knows that pain. And in our place, he cries, Father, I commit my spirit. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And because he did it in our place, we know that we are secure in him. God has become our mighty refuge, mighty rock. You see? This great comfort, this ultimate comfort is what we all need in this world. That's what you want. That's what I want. That's what we need. This great comfort first began to flow from the very heart of God, then over to David's heart and the hearts of all his people. And now it just became like mighty rushing waters upon the cross. And it came to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why should it stop with us? It must flow to the ends of the world. How? Through you. Through me. Through the church. Because the church is the body of Christ. Christ will comfort us again through the body, the church. May IGC be a church that suffers well. Not because of your great faith. Not because of anything in you. But because you experience the supreme comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that very comfort... Look around the world. The whole world lies in darkness, groaning under the weight of sin. With the very comfort that the triune God comforts you with. Comfort those who are weary and heavy laden. All to the glory of God and for the joy of all these people. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed Father, we stand before you amazed at your grace beyond measure. Father, we suffer and we hate it. We want you to remove it and we pour our hearts before you. And then we realize that you have already given us the ultimate comfort As I hear the Lord Jesus Christ cry upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of David, the psalms of David, his tears, his pain, I see, even though my problems remain, I find my heart immediately at peace. The Lord Jesus suffered in my place. He knows my pain. He knows what I am going through. He suffers with me And not just with me, but for me. That's all I need. Lord, may your comfort overwhelm our lives and fill all the valleys of our sorrows and overflow into all nations, into the hearts of all those who are weary and heavy laden, that they might find their ultimate refuge in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.